0: You saw nothing. I A did. nightmare. Imagine I he's did. out of excitement. Go back to sleep. Wizard it open. Hi everyone and welcome back to the IWMP podcast from the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son and it's still the holiday season. Wait, wait, oh.
1: are are you going to make me watch a movie? Of I mean, course. someone should stay here with the camp,
0: right? Get in the boat, Malik. Ah, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> So we're still celebrating the Yuletide, and for us this year, that means Christmas with Conan. Yeah. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we watched Conan the Barbarian, the 1982 John Milius movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, and we're back for more. Yeah, with a a movie that is still very Conan,
1: and also is very different.
0: 1984's Conan the Destroyer the sequel to Conan the Barbarian.
1: Have a holly jolly Christmas. <laughs> In case you didn't hear, oh, by Krom, have a holly jolly Christmas this year.
0: <laughs> when Crom emerges from the earth to bring weapons to all the good and violent children. Exactly. But yeah, this... You see, this is
1: interesting because I know you'd shown me both movies before we did this holiday theming. And it's weird, I remembered scenes from Destroyer, but I, only, I didn't remember the plot of anything but the Barbarian. Interesting. Which I think says a lot about how these movies are structured, and how these movies are different in their construction.
0: Now, I, I watched Conan the Barbarian on HBO when I was able to, finally, like I talked about last time. And I watched that a couple of times, but Conan the Destroyer, when it came on cable TV, that's the one that I watched repeatedly. Oh. I don't know how many times I watched this in that 1984, 85 time frame, but quite a few. You see, that doesn't surprise me. It, it, it's weirdly enough, the more approachable movie. It is. There are... There are ways in which it's kind of weird thinking about these movies as sequels as as one as the sequel to the other because they're so different in so many ways in tone. There are ways in which 82's Conan the Barbarian seems to me like a, a 70s movie. Yeah, kind of dark and gritty and serious and yeah, there are, of course there are things like Star Wars in the 70s, but I'm thinking of things like you know, the French connection and Serpico and well, I guess a lot of cop movies for some reason, that kind of darkness with an antihero sort of feel for a lot of, of the movies that, that arose in the, especially the early seventies, but all through the seventies. Conan the destroyer is from that magical year of 1984. Yeah. And it is very much an eighties movie to me. It is an eighties adventure movie. It is a,
1: it still has a bit of, uh, a bit of that Hyborian age feel, but everything has been smoothed down, rounded a little. This is, this has a little bit of the plasticiness that I would have expected. That seems weird to describe, but there's something about how certain characters are added in to take the edge off of things, how neatly certain things wrap themselves up, just how the fight scenes are presented a little bit more chunked in the way they are. It makes the entire thing feel... I I, I want to say flatter, but that's wrong. It still is a vibrant movie. It's an excellent at what it does. It's a, a different kind of experience. This movie has a bit more quest kind of nature to it than the original Conan
0: does. You talked about the original Conan the Barbarian feeling like a D&D game. Yes. I definitely knew people who played D&D in a way that was kind of like Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Destroyer is more like how my group and I played D&D. Yeah, that makes sense. Lighter, more episodic, more jokes, still plenty of fights and adventure and weird quests, but more lighthearted overall. And this movie is definitely more lighthearted overall.
1: I joked also about Conan the Barbarian of wanting the playset of certain of their settings and moments. And there's something very much the first movie... Begets the playsets, and then the playsets are used to play out the little story of Conan the Destroyer. <laughs> there's a little bit of a walk your He-Man action figure to the uh, the magical castle playset, complete with lake.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's there's something ironic about the idea of a Balsa Doom Mountain of Power playset. Yeah. But I could absolutely see a Castle of Toth Ammon playset yes. with the magic mirror room and all with these the things. With the mirror room and everything. You know. Now, I think to recognize the differences in these movies, we have to pay attention to the fact that these, this was not directed by John Milius. No. There weren't too many people kept from the original movie to this sequel. John Milius was not available. Of course, we've got Arnold Schwarzenegger. We've got Mako reprising his role as the, the wizard, Meiko! although he actually gets a name in this one, Akiro. Yes. And the composer of all people is the same. What? Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. Such different scores. Absolutely. The, the score for Conan the Barbarian was powerful, was interesting. It worked for that movie. There was nothing hummable about that score. No, but this one gets in your head. I can't begin to tell you how much I hummed the score for Conan the Destroyer to myself while riding my bicycle, raking leaves, doing whatever. It was, it's just such a cool main theme.
1: I'm going to just warn you right now, you're going to be editing this episode later. (laughs) You think you're not going to re-put it into your brain another time now? No question about it. Oh, goodness, yeah.
0: Now, they couldn't get John Milius to direct this movie. It was still produced by Dino De Laurentiis and his company. And I think Raffaella De Laurentiis was taking the lead in producing at this point. So they got another director, a director named Richard Fleischer. And this is not the first time we have watched a Richard Fleischer movie for this podcast.
1: It's not. And actually, it fits so well.
0: Cast your mind far back to the first few months of the IWMP podcast when we watched 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Walt Disney.
1: I'm sorry, why did no one in Conan's group have a turtle shell guitar?
0: (laughs) It would have fit so well. It could have fit so well. We didn't get a whole lot of singing in this, did we? No. Now, I mean, Richard Fleischer, he had done some more serious movies, too. Oh, yeah, he's got some wild stuff in here. He's got uh, a
1: 73 Soylent Green
0: yeah, he directed Soylent Green, Fantastic Voyage, Barabbas, the biblical epic from, uh, from 61, and that's a movie that he had directed for uh But he had also directed Mr. Majestic. He had, well, that's kind of an intense movie, too. He had directed... He did, he did the 96 biopic of Shea Guevara? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of... of it's funny... Now that I look, look more carefully at his filmography, I could see somebody saying, well, we need somebody who can do a gritty action movie, kind of the way Milius did, but Milius isn't available. Let's get the guy who did Mr. Majestic and the guy who did Soylent Green and, and all these other movies. The guy who did Barabbas, we know he can do a, uh, a, a Swords sword and, and Sandals, sandals uh, kind of movie. But it seems to me, once Fleischer got the reins of this He didn't look to those movies. He went all the way back to the 1950s and the way he handled 20,000 Leagues. Oh, yeah. This is a lighthearted adventure story.
1: I'm just imagining being – this is a man who, based on his career, is able to say, oh, yeah, I thought I'd take a break, do something light, you know, Conan the Barbarian. (laughs) And that fits,
0: and it's brilliant. And I say lighthearted because that's kind of the tone that, that both movies can achieve. And almost the baseline of both movies. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea dealt with some pretty intense topics and some pretty intense and grim characterizations as well. Mm -hmm. There was nothing happy about James Mason's Captain Nemo. And in the same way, Conan the Destroyer deals with some pretty intense stuff, and there are elements of horror in this movie. But it's got this baseline of lighthearted adventure. I mean, mean,
1: there's... I mean, we want to dive in deep to this. Let's go. There are some wildly interesting comparisons you can make between the depictions of Nemo and Conan. Both are men unparalleled in a specific subset who spend their time exploring and committing acts that that look to the outside as wildly destructive and violent. But they do so with a knowledge and understanding and a worldliness that most do not credit them, and we are seeing a snapshot where certain intersections create a short adventure, but we know most of their stories will continue from well before and well after, the bit that they pop up for this time.
0: And each of them lost the one thing that they loved. Yeah. And that defines their relationship to society. The main difference is that Conan is content to live on the edges of society, paying attention to his own code, but not necessarily society's rules and laws, and Nemo takes a more active role trying to destroy the civilization that led to the destruction of what he loved. But you're right, they've got similar backstories and they've got similar, similarly understandable reactions to that. Yeah, looking
1: at it, it's like, oh, wait, I know this kind of character and I've got an adventure story with them as one of the characters that this pivots around. Absolutely. Let's go for it. And it makes sense. And if we're going to get into the story of Conan the Destroyer, getting the fact that this is not quite the Conan we left, this is a bit more of a I've traveled a bunch and I'm some of that cynical nature we saw, I think, comes through more with this version of Conan.
0: Yeah, we see him and his now sidekick, somebody we haven't seen before. This wiry, kind of weaselly little guy named Malik, counting up the loot from their, from, from their latest heist where they've robbed a merchant of a bunch of jewels. And not long after this, there's a reference to Conan as the king of thieves. This is one of the personas of Conan, one of the things he was known as across all of the stories and therefore all of the legends across the Hyborian Age was that he was the king of thieves. If he wanted something, nobody could keep him from it. It's not that he was particularly sneaky. He was just particularly driven and powerful, and uh, he took what he wanted. Yeah. I I gotta say, the moment...
1: The moment Malik popped up on screen, I was immediately making comparisons to a different movie. Because for some reason, he reminded me so much of the character of Philippe Gaston, played by Matthew Broderick in the movie Lady Hawk. that I keep on comparing them. It's a very similar tone, if you've seen that other film.
0: Oh, that's weird. That's weird. It's
1: kind of wiry, bouncing around, and... He's important, but he, there's just something about him that called upon, like, "Oh, look, it's it's store brand, it's Point. store brand Matthew <laughs> Broderick from Lady. Wow,
0: Yuck. I ne I understand the connection you're drawing. I never drew it myself, just because. I mean, Gaston had he at least was somewhat self-directed. Oh yeah. And for much of the movie, he had to make decisions that drove things forward, and I can't see that happening with Malik. If, oh no, if Conan is is off screen or out of commission for a while. I don't see the story advancing very well. No,
1: yeah, that's why I'm calling him the off-brand version. <laughs> yeah, but the comparison came so forcefully. That
0: is interesting because yeah, he is the 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 wily thief companion to the strong fighter type. Exactly. That that works. But Tracy Walter, who plays um Malik, is just such a ubiquitous character actor and he's just so fun to watch. He's one of these person who's never playing the leading role but when he's on screen, you can't not pay attention to him, whether it's in this or Repo Man. He's a quintessential that guy in
1: some ways. Yes. I, I'm I'm seeing his listing and saying, like, did we watch the episode of Moonlighting he showed up in? <laughs> I don't did I know recognize him did. from WKRP in Cincinnati? It's like, you've shown me and I've seen and searched out enough other shows. And I'm like, I have seen this guy. I have heard him enough times that all I'm doing is pointing at the TV and going, it's him! That
0: guy from Police! He did Thing! He's done so much television and and so many movies, he's just so much fun to watch, and he's almost always playing the same kind of character. Yes! The kind of grimy, weaselly, self-serving, but overly proud of himself and trying to make excuses that he thinks other people are going to buy. It's such a fun part. It's I can uh, definitely see screenwriters writing the Tracy Walter part in this movie, because it's always the same character, and yet it never, I never tire of it. Yeah, he's so good at it. And it's interesting, because he acts kind of as an
1: audience surrogate character for us in this movie. We, are, we immediately are being introduced to Conan, who definitely has more adventure under his belt. The first movie was his first major adventure. From, from going from the Wheel of Pain to dealing with it, and now he wanders around, he's got a little Wheel of Pain necklace charm, uh, which is a nice little representation and such. Nice I like the costuming. fact that they kept that. I think yeah. that
0: was like Redbeard's sigil,
1: yeah. wasn't it? Or, I think, or oh, maybe, they, maybe it came it, from... I think it was a little sigil he had during the fights, because it was showing where he came from. Right, right. It's like, uh, oh, he's from the Wheel. That's where like, he was trained. Exactly. But it's like he's still got that, so there's that there, but this Conan is just like like well, I think they're here to kill us, like so because we took their stuff. we didn't take all of it, we took enough of it he's there's just <laughs> this little bit of like i've I've done this song and dance before, and it's useful to have Malik there as a as a not fighter, both to be able to give us a better contrast between how much of definitely a fighter Conan is. We don't have the benefit of training montage anymore. We need to establish him. And so we get comparison. And you get someone who is always looking for a way out and always kind of head on a swivel in that way. Which means you've got someone who can comment on where you are and what you're doing so that all of your audience stays in line with it and anyone can answer What the thing is. It's like, do we have to go to the spooky castle? Well, yes, the spooky castle of Andorok is where the rock is. We have got to go there and get the rock. And it becomes a way to tell the audience something because they're telling Malik to deal with it. We've got (laughs) to do thing. And that's an effective bit of writing. But it does add to the little snippets kind of moments that break this up and make it a little bit more... D session-e in the way you're describing.
0: Yeah, the way this plot is constructed, you can kind of see where the D group broke for the night and where they picked up the next episode next time they got together on a Friday night. And it all comes together in one long story, but it's 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 also made up of these little self contained adventures within it.
1: You know that if there's an actual person in a d and d campaign who's playing a character like Malik, it's most likely the one who actually takes copious notes <laughs> and is on top of stuff and exactly knows
0: he's getting everyone else in the party up to speed every time he does that. There was one science fiction RPG that I was a player in, it was run by your your aunt, and the character I created for that was absolutely modeled yes. on a Tracy Walters character, yes. <laughs> It was a little mechanic character name. I forget what he was named, but he was definitely a Tracy, uh, Tracy Walter character. He's, he's such he, a fun character to watch. I figured that'd be a fun character to play. Absolutely. And yet Malik is not useless in a fight. And mm, I was glad yeah. to see that because I don't think that Conan, even the stoic Conan that we see here at the beginning of this movie, stoic in the sense of he really doesn't care if he lives or dies- while he lives, he is going to live, and if someone tries to kill him, he is going to fight them. But he can fight so effectively because he doesn't care whether he lives or dies, and that's because, like we said, he's already lost the one thing he was ever going to love. But even that character, he would not have had any patience for Malik if Malik were not also useful. And he is. His His go-to move in a fight is to get out of harm's way by climbing up high and then jumping onto the back of somebody else's horse and stabbing them with two daggers. But it's effective. It's effective! And we do see him uh, have to use this move, and we get to see how Conan is fighting these days, because while they're sitting in this kind of clearing surrounded by rocks... Safe point. Yeah. (laughs) A whole bunch of, of riders come up and try to capture conan they don't seem to be trying to kill him they're mostly using nets but it's um a very different episode of yeah.
1: deadliest catch than i expected
0: <laughs> i don't know what kind of bait they were using but uh, it was not working no um they might not have been trying to kill conan but conan was not holding back uh, in trying to kill them and not many of them survived Mm-hmm.
1: but then in comes the person who sent net person if i remember correctly
0: Yes, the queen who was trying to capture Conan, but also I think this was an audition because she wants Conan to do something for her, to go on a quest for her. Conan's legend as a, an adventurer and warrior and thief had had grown so that she had heard of him. And this is a Queen Taramis, played by Sarah Douglas. And she wants Conan to accompany her niece on this quest for which her niece had been prepared all her life, because she had to, and this is where you're setting up the D&D campaign.
1: Oh, absolutely. She had
0: to go to some magical place to get a key, because then she had to take the key to another place to get the magic jeweled horn, and then they had to take the magic jeweled horn back here to be part of some big ceremony. And she needed a, a thief and a bodyguard to help with this. It's kind of the Bilbo Baggins recruiting method. They needed a broken Yeah, very much so. I wonder if Conan brought pocket handkerchiefs. (laughs) (laughs) I think in some scenes that's all he's wearing is a pocket handkerchief. It is. I'm
1: just imagining the idea of Conan the Barbarian putting on the one ring, Sauron's giant eye pivots over and then flinches.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Conan is not interested in working for any queen or anybody else. He works for himself. But the queen is able to promise him something.
1: Yeah, she promises to ro- to resurrect Valeria.
0: And yet, she never says, I'm going to bring back your dead, lost love, Valeria. She doesn't, actually, you're right. It's this great little scene where it's ambiguous. Is she using magic? Is she just using some kind of hypnotism? Because she essentially says, yeah, I can bring back what you, I can, I can give you what you most desire. What you most desire is what I can give you. Look there on that ancient stone altar in front of you and see what you most desire. See what I can give you. And he imagines Valeria as she looked on her funeral pyre. And he says, well, no one can bring back.
1: It's it's how she looked on her funeral pyre, pyre, decked out in the armor she appeared when she saved him.
0: You're right, in her like Valkyrie armor.
1: Yeah, so, so it's, it's like, like the
0: idealized version of Valeria. And it's kind of a little bit of a cold reading she's giving. He starts to say, well, no one can give you that. No one can bring back the dead. And then she starts saying, are you sure? If you do this for me, I can do this for you. Mm-hmm. So And I, 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 you saw it. So it's kind of cool. It is a an ambiguous. Is she just really good at manipulating people, letting them tell her what they want so that she can promise it? But either way, it's enough to convince Conan, so he agrees to go on this quest. So it's him and Malik and the niece, the young princess that uh, that they are bodyguarding and and uh, and escorting. It's Olivia Dabo as Princess Jenna, and also Wilt Chamberlain as Bombata. Yeah.
1: NBA basketball player Wilton Norman Chamberlain putting in work as with some brilliant acting. Honestly, there's scenes that pivot on him cuz he has to play like right-hand man of the of well, let's be honest, the bad guy. And and we get told early like the plan is get her to the place. She can she's the only one who can pick up the thing for us. And when she gets back here, she's the sacrifice. And the moment that uh, that we're re- that uh, he's no longer useful, it's your job to stab Conan the Barbarian in the back. And immediately, he is playing stalwart and reliable henchman. He is playing nervous at being given a task that is dangerous. He is playing. Smart but duplicitous, he has a lot going on in these scenes, and he's doing great with every bit of it.
0: There is more depth to his character than possibly any of the other characters in this movie. Yeah, and he nails it. It's a good performance, and I. It makes sense that they would cast him. There was a fair amount of what people might look at as stunt casting in this. Wow, it's Wilt Chamberlain, and he's going to be in this movie. There are some of the other bits of casting that you could see in the same way, but. In addition to his good performance, you needed someone physically big in that role. Because there are scenes later on in which you need somebody who can credibly fight with Conan and make it seem like a contest. Yeah. And Bombata, Wilt Chamberlain, he's taller. He's still strong. It's a very different kind of athleticism than Schwarzenegger's bodybuilding athleticism. But the differences in stature, the size of Wilt Chamberlain, combined with some good direction and fight choreography, it was believable. It was. In a way that, A, it wouldn't have been believable with most character actors, and B, if it had just been another bodybuilder type that they cast, it would have been boring. It would have been two muscle-bound guys going after each other, as opposed to this fight between these two very different kinds of warriors of almost equal strength exactly this is
1: he's playing a foil to the main character the title character and it that that requires a level of just multiple types of skill that he is giving
0: so that's the the party that they leave uh, uh on this quest for and they're following the lead of the princess, Jenna, because she has this mystical knowledge of where they're supposed to go. But Conan insists on a detour or two. Yeah. <laughs> which, which Jenna kind of whines about. and You're supposed to follow me. But he, he explains, no, we have to go this way first because where we are going, there's going to be magic and we need to fight it with magic. And that means they go to find the wizard. Yay! Mako a- is back. Mako is back. And we learn from from a a great exclamation by our our stand in slash ready exposition character Malik. Oh, it's Akiro. That's where we're going. <laughs> like, so yeah. Mako's character has a name now. He has a name. And
1: a reputation. He wasn't he's not just some random wizard. He's a guy who's known. Almost like after the first adventure there's been more adventures and Conan's called on him other times as well. It it adds to the world the the Hyborian Age having a depth in Conan the Destroyer that it doesn't have in Conan the Barbarian. It has there is implications of the Hyborian Age being something that is still going on and forming itself as it, as it is. There's a lot of ancient things or the things of the past in the previous movie. This one is like, oh no, this guy has a current rep going on now.
0: And I like that continuity because like I mentioned in our, our last podcast, the, the Conan the Bar- Barbarian, there was a lot of implied size to the world. We heard about kingdoms and kings and places and peoples that we never get to see. And here we're we're okay, we're getting to see more than we had before. They're exploring some of this bigger world, which is still bigger than we're getting to see here. So I like that. Oh yeah. And I definitely get the impression that yeah, you know, Mako and and Malik had met before. They just Mako spends most of his time at home, which is now in the forest and not on the beach. Well, I, I'm
1: imagining Mako's just like picks up all this stuff, puts it on a little wheeled cart, (laughs) moves it to some place vaguely nearby where Conan's going to be for a while.
0: And there's this little set piece of, they've got to, they they happen to come to Mako's place, they have to come to Akira's place, that is, when Akira is being about to be roasted by some jungle savages who want to eat him in order to get his magic. Yeah, which is... mm. Yeah, it's, I mean...
1: (laughs) Oh! It's been a while since combat and the DM threw some minis on the table. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So,
0: it's, it's, it's not terribly interesting. It's, not, it, it's got a couple of jokes in there.
1: But- it definitely sets the fact that there'll be jokier, lighter scenes. Yeah. And it's, it's not great how they do that, but the fact that we get this, this back and forth with some of the characters at that time... Gives you an idea of the kind of action scene we're in for.
0: Yeah, they wanted a story beat other than knocking on Akira's door and saying, "Hey, it's time for an adventure." Okay, I'll uh, grab I do, my
1: stuff. I do kind of want the shot reverse shot of knocking on his door. He opens and cut back, and then cut to the from the inside out, and you just see all of them in the doorway. <laughs> that would have been brilliant.
0: <laughs> that sounds like a Scooby Doo kind of a scene. It does. I don't know why. And then. There's one more member of the party who has to be added. Yeah. And that is another bit that I I could see it being thought of maybe as kind of stunt casting. Because they run into a, a warrior woman named Zula, played by Grace Jones. Now, Grace Jones is... You've seen Grace Jones before. I don't know if it's in a movie that we talked about for the podcast but she was in the James Bond movie, A View to a Kill. Yes. As Christopher Walken's right-hand assassin henchperson.
1: Yeah, she's one of those... She's one of those, actor- those actors who their presence, even when they don't have a line, they've she just commands the room in that sense. And there's something about the way they introduce her with this entire little other scene and moment That feels like she's a, it's like a Marvel character showing up in another one's movie for a moment. It feels like she's a completely different series of adventures that are (laughs) intersecting for a moment. And there are fans who have come here because they've been following the Zula uh, film series. And there's fans from the Conan film series. And they both happen to team up in this one.
0: Yes, or I can absolutely see the the Zula spinoff comic series. And Grace Jones, she was already well-renowned as a, a model and a singer before she turned to acting. Mm-hmm. So she's one of the... and she, So she already had such a, a presence and such a following that people were eager to see her in movies, which is why in the early 80s uh, she was put into more and more movies. And I think she... I think she handled those movies very well. I think she played a terrific role in those movies, partly because directors and casting directors were smart about what they cast her as, be it the role in the James Bond movie or or Zula, because I wouldn't say she's necessarily an actor with tremendous range, but she's really, really good within the range she's got. And all of that played upon the image that she had from her music and her modeling. I mean, she's incredibly tall, incredibly thin and fit, and it's like... You're here. I can't stop looking at you. You terrify me. Please don't go away. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's like, like I'm glad you're on my side. (laughs) And she plays, uh, when we first meet Zula, she has been chained to a stake and is being kind of toyed with by a whole crowd of villagers. And apparently she was one of a bunch of bandits who came in to raid. And she's the only one left. And they're having some fun before they execute her. And Conan helps make it a fair fight by cutting the rope that she's tied up with. And then it's, you know, her against a whole village. Odds are, uh, all the bets are on her. Yeah. There's one joke in this sequence, this little scene that I don't like. Mm -hmm. I can understand why they made it. It's not an unfunny joke, but it's when Jenna who sees what's happening goes to Conan and she wants Conan to do something about this woman who's tied up and it's like six against one fighting against her. And Jenna says to Conan, you know, do something. It's not fair. It's six against one. And they have this little beat for Schwarzenegger as he like tries to start counting one, two, three. Yeah. You might be right. No. With the suggestion that he can't count up to six. That's that. I know that's, it's, yeah, he's the muscle head, he doesn't it's, even know numbers. There is some flanderization yes.
1: of Conan the Barbarian, and this is something that, yeah, we've got to acknowledge, it's sad. We have lost the the philosopher-fighter, and he is, he's brought down to a lower level sometimes.
0: Yeah, he's in here he is clever, but uneducated. In the first movie, they made the point that he has been educated, he has learned philosophy, and he has. Le- I'm sure he has learned basic mathematics or arithmetic. I'd say somebody who is supposed to be able to fight is going to know how to count up enemies really well, and keep track of how many there are left. Oh, yeah. If you have six enemies, and then you kill three enemies, how many enemies do you have left? I'm pretty sure that's math that Conan can do. Oh, yeah. I, I'm sorry. He's been
1: trained with a bow. It might not be his, his weapon of choice, but I'm certain he knows what to do if he picks one up. And that means you know how to count how many arrows are in your quiver (laughs) and subtract how many you fired and keep that running total constantly shifting as you move, picking up ones from your fallen enemies and firing new ones into your dying ones. Right. He is going to be able to do that math as fast as he needs to. Now, could I see Conan making a joke by going slow? Because he he trusts that the fight's going to be okay? Maybe. But that's me trying to give credit back when I shouldn't have to, because it shouldn't have put in that scene to begin with.
0: Yeah, I, I could imagine it's he suspects that the Queen and Princess Jenna and Bombada all see him as the unintelligent lunkhead. So he's gonna toy with them by playing that role. But yeah, we, it's that—that's—that's that's a stretch in order to sell to save this. I think it was just a a joke they put in because it seemed funny, and it was it was the one place where the the drive towards lightheartedness in this movie I feel like it betrayed me a little bit. Yeah. But of course, once she gets free, which she does, Zula goes after Conan and the the people to. Pledge her loyalty to Conan, and just all she wants is to ride with him and fight with him. And uh, Bombata tries to drive her away, and Conan says, "Well, we'll see what happens. Come on. Yeah.
1: And that, that's one of those moments where it's like it's got to be way much way harder to stab this guy in the back if you're there. You can kind of watch Bombata figuring that out. It's like, <laughs> uh, I thought it was gonna, I didn't think it was going to be easy, even though there's that much back to stab it's with you here, I'm I'm more likely to die once I do finish betraying them. Oh, great!
0: And that's that's the end of our first extended episode. We've got all of our characters. We've got the party. We've got the quest. You
1: could almost hear the. You could almost hear the little uh, PlayStation pop up. Yeah, you know, Zula joins the party. <laughs> little text box appearing in a window.
0: So then they have to go on to the next little self-contained adventure, and that is going to the, the castle of Voth Ammon.
1: Yeah, the, this, is, this is the magical Voth Ammon playset, which absolutely comes with the little rolled-up piece of blue vinyl to act as the lake it sits on, I think.
0: <laughs> so it's this magical crystal castle out in the middle of the lake, and they have to go there because that's where the, the, the key that is needed to later get the special magical jeweled horn is and they decide well it's getting late let's go there in the morning instead of trying to venture out as it's getting dark cool idea except when amon whose castle this is decides to come and snatch the princess hi i'm a bird <laughs> yes. made of smoke or mist or like yeah he turns into kind of this this <laughs> Hi, I'm a dragon made of Uh, cotton smoke. I'm ethereal enough to pass through walls
1: silently, yet sturdy enough to pick up a full (laughs)
0: grown woman and drag her away without a sound. What? They do some pretty good editing with that as well. They do. some, Some animation, and it's similar to the animation of the demons during Conan's resurrection scene in the previous movie we get this animation of this smoked dragon and cutting back and forth to it flying towards them on the lake and everybody else sleeping. And I think they were like knocked out by the magic fog. Yeah, it's think? like he puts out magic sleep fog and everyone's just like oh, maybe this is a fine place to rest. Oh, okay. and, and you cut cut to the dragon, cut back to them and you see a shadow go across them and then cut back to the dragon reaching down and then like cut back to the princess being gone. It's really well done to incorporate this animation without having to try to composite things or, or do things that would have would have been more likely to show the seams and, and show where it doesn't really work. Yeah, it's, it's honestly a
1: very, very well done scene, which makes, ironically enough, the, the way the chase after, once they wake up in the morning, feel all the weirder. Because they, they wake up and they're like, she's gone! Oh no! Well, the wizard who guards the thing we're camping outside of must have been the one to take her. Everyone hop in the boat. And I'm sorry, I've got to point out, that boat is one of the wildest bits of green screening I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> because it feels so weird, they misalign the boat going towards the camera and the back plate of the pier they're leaving, <laughs> and it starts to look like Conan is somehow flying the boat slowly into the air up towards the <laughs> castle away from the water. I looked at i I wanted to go back I found clips later because this was just too
0: weird of a moment to jump ahead a little bit when they're taking the same boat back after their adventure in the castle, and one of the, one of the people on the boat is saying. It's ju- It was just an illusion. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, yes, yeah. I can obviously you see, see that. see it, exactly. Oh, you're not talking about the boat. <laughs> exactly. But they, they, they trust this boat that they found on the shore across from the evil guy's magic castle in the lake, get into it and go to the evil guy's magic castle in the lake. Yeah. Eventually find their way inside. And meanwhile... He's kidnapped the princess because she. he knows that she's the only one who can get the jewel that is needed for the next step. And he wants that step instead, I believe. Right. So, you know, they make their way inside, and they find the chamber where the jewel is, and it's this round room surrounded by mirrors, and that's a pretty cool magic monster fighting set piece that that leads to. It is
1: it is a it is a scene that I cannot tell if it is classic because other movies and other shows have 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 made reference to this or if this is making reference to the same things those are.
0: Well, there's plenty of like mirror maze sort of scenes, like right. Enter the Dragon and plenty of others.
1: But this one is the the you know, fight in there In comes the monster that is invulnerable. Nothing, like, all all of Conan's attacks are doing nothing.
0: Yeah, it can hurt Conan, but when Conan tries to hit it, or or hit hit it with his sword, the sword just passes right through, as if it's an illusion. How do you fight something like that? And do they figure out to break all the mirrors? And every time a mirror is broken, that's another wound on the monster.
1: Hi, the monster is the room. It's
0: just a clever
1: moment. I love that. It's also another moment that feels very, you know, Dungeons & Dragons tabletop-y. But we wind up having the rest of the group outside looking into this mirror chamber through- Like I said, one-way mirror? One-way mirror. And cheering Conan on, and you kind of get wrapped up with them, cheering as part of the group- For him to, you know, solve the puzzle and defeat the monster. And I was amazed at how well it sucked you in, even though I'd been thinking, oh, look how cheesy this one is compared to the other. This got me. And I was very impressed with that scene.
0: And eventually when the monster is destroyed and it collapses under its big red cloak, while Conan is dealing with the, to, with, um, well, killing the, the wizard, not, not his wizard, the wizard who owns the castle. And getting the princess back. The others are checking out the cloak and underneath this cloak is a pile of shattered mirror shards where the monster was. Yeah. Such a cool little touch. I love it. Excellent
1: little scenes and excellent, excellent environmental design. I got to say the Conan the Barbarian had a lot of open blank fields, a couple of close filmed town sets, a few throne room things but it didn't have as much set design as this movie does. This movie has much more set and environment design. It is a little bit more built. It is a bit more of a constructed place.
0: Yes, and I can think of reasons for that. In the initial the the first movie, it was Conan's origin story and it was trying to portray the bleak world which gave rise to Conan and who he is. And in this, we're seeing the more complex world in which Conan then operates. But it's also just, it's more interesting to look at this movie than something that's always nothing but desert. And it definitely gives
1: a bit more of a feeling like Conan has wandered from his wide open Eurasian steppe uh, area westward towards a bit more of the hills and valleys and misty moors, a bit more of the farther european kind of swords and sorcery environment.
0: I guess there's, yeah, there's, he's gone there's even, still, he's gone west, maybe a little south. Yeah, yeah. He,
1: there's still some there's still some sword and sandal, but this is at that line where the sword and sandal meets the knights in armor le- uh boundaries. And that gives you a little bit of an idea of the environment and the style and how that changes the feel so much.
0: Yeah, there are some shots in this that would not have been jarring were they put into Excalibur or crow or or crow, yeah, oh, and speaking of the design and the effects for this, I have to correct myself. I was talking last time about some of the really impressive practical effects they did to like add a model of a of a of a an ancient city to a real mountain. The one I had in mind was actually from this movie, not from Conan the Barbarian. I don't doubt that they may have done some of that for Conan the Barbarian, but the really impressive shots like that, I think, are from Conan the Destroyer, and that makes sense because there is more complex, interesting things to look at in Conan the Destroyer. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense, with that, yeah. And I can understand with Fleischer having experience in merging puppetry and forced perspective and weird props and live actors going all the way back to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He had some tricks up his sleeve, he and his team.
1: Yeah, he's going he's gonna to pull out some stops to make something feel magical in an establishing shot in a different way than you'd get from another director who, who hasn't been able to experiment with those tools the same way.
0: And in terms of magic, this movie seems to have a very different feel, an approach to magic in this swords and sorcery world. In Conan the Barbarian, there was magic. We saw some magic. Some of what we saw was what Tulsa Doom could do, and some of what we saw was what Akira, back then just called the wizard, was capable of in summoning demons and things. But it was all a very physical kind of magic. It was all doom controlling his environment and controlling himself and the the magic that made him powerful wasn't the magic of turning into a snake it was the magic of persuading people to do his bidding no matter what yeah the the wizardry we see uh mako's character perform in that movie it was about very physical seeming aspects of life or death there's a, there's a
1: force needed to apply to the world to make it move in this way. It requires this, this, this extreme presence built up with layer upon layer from Dulce. It requires arduously painting sigils on the body of a dead man to bring him back, kind of like...
0: And it was a very will-based magic it was very much it it relied upon just the force of will that thulsa doom had or the force of will that the wizard and that valeria had the magic in conan the destroyer seems more creepy and otherworldly like it's based not just on my immediate will right now but upon my understanding of ancient knowledge Mm mm-hmm it's a bit more of a magic
1: of the mind in a different way. There's a bit more, I know something that lets me do this. Right. You know, previously, this was magic that was done by pushing on the world with enough force in a place to make it bend. This is more the magic where if I know to put thing here and here and here, I can use much less And the whole thing moves. And that's just creepier. Yes, it it is. It's like, yes, you could turn into a mist dragon by making sure everything is right. But knowing you can step right here off this tower at this time of night, this thing, and you turn into it and you can do this. There's something scarier because they know this and more disturbing because it's not this earned force that they put so much effort into before, it's this this trick to it.
0: It's like the magic in Conan the Barbarian was about breaking down the doors, and the magic in Conan the Destroyer is about knowing how to pick the locks.
1: Yes! Which actually fits what happens later very well.
0: <laughs> yes, because, uh, well, it ter- does turn out that, uh, that, that Toth Ammon... Uh, was a uh, a load-bearing bad guy. <laughs> because when they destroy him and take the 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 key gem from his castle, the castle begins to collapse and they hightail it out of there in the boat. And, and they move on to the next adventure, which is go- taking this key to the place where the the sacred ancient jeweled horn is located.
1: Exactly. Good session, guys. Same time ne- next week. But uh It's off to the gang the jeweled horn. We get a bit of camp downtime in the in between. I remember.
0: Yeah, we do get that bit of a little bit of character development. (laughs) Mostly break from the action. Mostly involving everyone
1: getting drunk.
0: And all the while, the very young Princess Jenna has been falling. uh, uh, Has has developed a crush on Conan. Yeah, and you know, meanwhile, she's literally half his age. And And he's still, the only person he was ever going to love is Valeria. Exactly. It's like, oh,
1: this isn't a love triangle. This is an unfortunate love vector (laughs) where each are pointing in a different direction.
0: And, And yet it's, there's, there are parts where the script just gets creepy, but there are also parts where it's like, it's cute and understandable. She's been locked away in this palace, trained to be part of this magical whatever this is all her life, and like, she even hurts Bombada's feelings by saying, I've never really seen a man. I mean, all I've seen is you. So the idea of her having a crush on this uh, this Conan, the, the destroyer that she sees, and that's understandable.
1: And there is a really fun little moment where she's just like, hearing drunken Conan mumble some of what he thought was so amazing about Valeria, and immediately... The princess's thoughts is, I need to learn how to fight. <laughs> Zula, you're a, you're a warrior woman. Teach me how to fight. And suddenly, Codehead's stumbling over. It's like, don't learn how to use a spear. That's a bad weapon. Learn the sword. Sword's good. Steel. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, steel.
0: And meanwhile, Jetta can't, can't even lift the sword. The Codehead yeah, can't, <laughs> can't even lift the sword. And
1: Zula's just there, like, thank me, I helped. He's got, you've got his attention.
0: <laughs> so yeah, that was, um, there's that and some other kind of jokey character development. That's oh, all yeah. fun. And then they make it to the next adventure, which is the, the temple where they have to use the key in order to open a special chamber where this horn of, of, um, the god Dagoth has to be retrieved, and the whole idea is that the, the queen and the princess need to retrieve this sacred jeweled horn to bring to life their wonderful god Dagoth,
1: who is depicted as a uh, a a very handsome looking man on a horse.
0: Oh, I thought he was just kind of reclining and chilling out. But I thought def- he,
1: I thought he was I thought he was riding a horse on the statue. Might have
0: been definitely a pretty boy. Yeah, hole in his head where a horn might go. But what do they find when they get to this uh, this old temple? Well, they find a couple of things. One is they find the place where they can use the key and get the, the horn. They also find a wall full of ancient inscriptions, which Akiro can read. And he, say, he learns, well, okay, uh, let's see. This is saying that in such and such a year, a princess with a certain birthmark is supposed to get this... Uh, jewel, and then be sacrificed so that those who sacrifice her can reign at the right hand of the god who is going to come and destroy the rest of the world. Wait a minute, Conan. <laughs> come, like, Kim, can you take a look at this? Did you know about this? Yeah. And then it's, just, there's a little bit of a, ah, dang
1: it, you brought someone who can read the instruction manual. <laughs> well.
0: And, uh, and um, that's not the only problem, because there is apparently this cult in this temple ...whose job is to guard everything, and I think they now, now that that the princess has been able to liberate this horn, they want it, and they want to use it, because they've been training for this all of their lives, too. Exactly. And that just leads to all kinds of running (laughs) sword fights throughout this temple. We, We learn
1: in this moment that there's a lot of jobs in the local areas... In the local area completely supported by the Dagoth economy. It's like everyone has been training on for this for all of their lives in multiple different groups with multiple different parts. It's like the moment you remove the Dagoth from this place, it's not going to do as well.
0: <laughs> um and there are a few neat bits there where we see Bombata realizing, well, now that we've got the the magic horn uh the princess was able to get it i put it in the bag that i'm carrying we don't need conan anymore so he like accidentally leaves conan behind in some of these fights to be killed accidentally starts locking the door behind them before conan can join them in in the safe place um and yet conan of course survives of course And doesn't quite recognize what Bombad has been doing all this time. Which is
1: another annoying thing. It's like, (laughs) are you still playing dumb, or or have you, in fact, been this flanderized? Because, honestly, (laughs) you should be able to realize and give him a talking to about the morality of his actions if you
0: were the Conan of before. Yeah, you would think a great tactician like Conan would kind of say, well, this is weird. (laughs) Like, ah, you thought you could head me off at the pass. yes. And all of this confusion gives Bombata enough leeway that he can grab the horn, grab the princess, get on their horses, and and bring the princess back to the palace. But of course, Conan, being the good guy, and also Conan recognizing, oh, this Dagoth when he wakes up is going to destroy the earth, and that's where I live. I think I should do something about it. But mostly, it's because well, there's and a that's where I keep all princess. my stuff, right? <laughs> right? Mostly because there's a defenseless princess who needs his help. He insists on going to the palace to save her. Everybody else joins him except Malik, who is not really interested until the remaining temple cult people who've been after them show up and he joins them as well. So eventually they're all heading back to the queen and be the now captive princess.
1: Which sounds way more Scooby Doo chase like in our uh, description here than it is played out, but not much more.
0: <laughs> no. So the final bit, the final adventure, the final session, yeah, is infiltrating the palace and interrupting the ceremony in which they're putting this special magical horn back into the forehead of the pretty boy Dagoth statue uh, to wake him up. And, is, and the plan is that they're supposed to sacrifice the princess at the first signs of life from the statue. Or and, or else things will go terribly wrong, so let's not forget that step about sacrificing the princess, okay, guys? Got terribly it. wrong happens. Of course, because Conan, after the really cool fight that we've been waiting for all movie between Arnold Schwarzenegger and Wilt Chamberlain. Oh, yeah. That goes on for a while, but I wouldn't remove a second of it. Because oh. It's, like I said, you've a, been waiting a, for it's that. It's an
1: excellent fight, and they've been yeah. doing so good. Just setting them up to counterplay each other and, ca- and, you know, back and forth the entire time.
0: But ultimately, with the help of his companions, of course, Conan interrupts the ceremony, saves the life of the princess. And we get to see what happens when you wake up Dagoth with the horn, but you don't give him his sacrifice of a princess.
1: And the answer is we get our last uh, character joining the, uh, the events going on. Dagoth, uncredited, but played by Andre the Giant. Yes! Yes! Showing up in a rubber suit and absolutely being brilliantly terrifying.
0: (laughs) Now, I keep going back and forth on this when I see this movie. Is that what Dagoth was going to be like all the while? Was his statue form, a chill pretty boy... To make it seem enticing to wake him up, and then when he's awake, he turns into a horrible monster? Or would he have been a chill, pretty boy content to destroy only part of the world if he got his sacrifice, but because he didn't, he turned into the giant, green, scary monster? I
1: don't—yeah, that's a very good question Uh, that—it's very good that we don't get— an answer to, because the princess gets to live, but it's very odd that it's like, oh, yeah, he, this anime pretty boy would have been here if he'd just gotten his morning cup of sacrificed princess. <laughs> it's a w-
0: wild setup. It is. And and now that we're talking about Dagoth and we're talking about that act that he is awakened from his his ageless slumber and turns into this horrible beast that, oh, in addition to him being a big monster who's killing everybody in the palace, there are giant earth-shattering storms raging outside. And you definitely get the impression this is not just a local phenomenon. Dagoth is back, and the whole world is in peril. You get the impression that
1: Dagoth is a, is larger than the thing standing in the room. There's very much that Lovecraftian kind of, I am bigger, I am, like... <laughs> This is this is the fingertip of something multiple levels of dimensions above poking into the world and you and stabbing at you.
0: Yes, that's where I was going. There's something very Lovecraftian about this. I'm glad you picked up on that as well. Even the name Dagoth. Yes. I mean uh um and some of the other magical names and terms that we see and the idea of these ancient cults who exist only to protect this one weird little bit of knowledge or or this old relic. Very Lovecraftian. And I honestly don't know how much of this story specifically is taken from Robert E. Howard's writings. But Robert E. Howard definitely looked up to a writer who was a little older and was publishing a little earlier by the name of H.B. Lovecraft and
1: mm-hmm. corresponded
0: with him a little bit. He wasn't part of the real close Lovecraft circle, but in terms of where their stuff was published. And the the pulp literary circles in which they operated, there was a connection there. So, there is sometimes that hint of otherworldly cosmic horror in Conan's stuff, and it's fascinating to see that come out in this movie. Because, again, it, it puts more at stake than one person's will and destiny. Which is kind of what we see in the first movie.
1: Yeah, this is... In the first movie, you get the very clear impression that if Conan hadn't defeated Thulsa Doom, there would have been larger consequences for the region. But that was a little bit more of a political struggle and a vengeance plot. There is straight-up world ending. There is a a standard amount of character-to-threat character to threat power scaling happening from one movie to the next in that sense
0: yeah if also doom had won, then it would have been warlord takes over the known world and yeah that is bad well we go on the record and saying warlord takes over the known world is bad ancient horrible monster destroys the world and everything in it probably worse certainly different and interesting in different ways Which
1: does imply that there's an entire other alternate side story here about what would happen if Thulsa Doom had decided to get his sword early on from somewhere completely different, and you wind up with Thulsa Doom and his army of cultists facing down... The fact that there is a plague of Dagoth sweeping in from from the other side and threatening his kingdom.
0: Okay, There's so- There's a bit
1: of a completely other story here.
0: So we need a new board game series, uh, Unmatched XL. <laughs> yes! Where potentially world-ending villains get to fight against one another.
1: Ah, I like that. I like that a lot, actually. <laughs>
0: but ultimately the bad guys who deserve it uh get their fate the princess is saved and we get the we get the medal ceremony scene everybody we- gets something including the wookiee we do but that's
1: an it's an interesting moment because yeah the you know the day is saved the dagoth is slain and the princess now becomes the queen because you know queen got smushed by the dagoth but she she pulls every other person in the party in to be members of her court of some form.
0: Right. he She asks Zula to be the captain of her guard. She asks Malik to be her fool, because every court needs a fool. And he's just like, uh, I guess it pays. Uh, asks Akira to be her advisor and wise counselor.
1: And that one's important, because we know by the fact that he is the chronicler of the other stories that he chronicles Conan getting a kingdom by his own hand. <laughs> But now he's working for this other kingdom as an advisor,
0: which simultaneously
1: means that sometime within both of their overlapping lifetimes, Conan will have a kingdom and he will be there to chronicle it. Does that mean Conan's going to go off, start a kingdom, and that kingdom's eventually going to invade and take over this kingdom as part of it? Or what? Or does he just leave this job and go to that job?
0: I would hope that when Conan gets his kingdom and we spoiler from the very, the, the, the end of the first movie that Conan was destined to actually, no spoiler from the beginning of the first movie. Yeah. He's destined to wear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. Uh, you know, dress for the job you want. I'm going to do that at next month's company-wide uh, sales team offsite. I'm going to wear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow.
1: I'm just imagining the him looking forlorn in a in the throne from the first movie, but it's just one box on the Zoom call, and everyone else looks normal.
0: So I would like to think that when Conan is king of Aquilonia, his kingdom and Prince and Queen Jenna's kingdom are going to be allies or at least friends. But who knows? Maybe somebody bad takes over. Jenna's kingdom eventually. Mm-hmm. And, or maybe that, you know, Jenna doesn't need that much teaching after a while and Akira is free to do some freelance chronicling. Uh. But, but it's interesting, I like the way it's shot in that every one of these people, Akira, Malik, Zula, when they're offered this position by Queen Jenna, they turn to Conan, because they've already pledged themselves to Conan. Mm-hmm. And he gives them all a nod. He he, he gives them their freedom to take this, this position and this, this new adventure. And then Jenna, of course, has an offer for Conan, too. She wants Conan to stay and rule her kingdom with her. And he, I'd say, politely declines. He says that... Uh, he will have his own kingdom and his own queen. Yeah. And she's obviously disappointed, but she understands. It's like,
1: yeah, no. And, and yeah, he's not going to stay at, in uh, Shadizar.
0: Shadizar, that was it. I remembered it sounded kind of Middle Eastern.
1: Yeah, no, he's, he's going to go off on his own. And that's where we leave it.
0: And at least in this one, there is a little bit of an epilogue, and we get Mako as the wizard uh, reading it, instead of just being text-like at the end of Conan the Barbarian. But it is a very satisfying wrap-up. It is. We get the end of the, the adventures for some of these characters. We get the certainty that Conan is going on to more adventures. And I think that if Conan needed help from Akiro or Zulu or Malik, that Queen Jenna would allow them to go and have an adventure with Conan when the time came.
1: You can kind of imagine a later story in which, you know, when, when he's having trouble when something's happening, suddenly in rides this group of old buddies to save the day. I, that, that is a clear and, and possible storyline at that point. And it gives this impression that he's been, you know, he's doing other adventures and there's allies now all across the world. And that's, that's a powerful thing. That's part of what makes him... Growing towards that, that king trouble brow aside, believable at the end of this. In some ways, this movie does more to set up that implied open that thing that we see at the opening of the first movie than the first movie did, which is interesting.
0: So I guess that brings us to our final questions.
1: It really does.
0: Hmm. Well, it's a movie,
1: screen or no screen, screen screen it's a very different movie honestly i'm gonna just be frank i like conan the barbarian more than i like conan the destroyer oh okay but i think conan the destroyer is more watchable in a popcorny i want an action film kind of way it it's it's easier to pull down off the shelf and watch but it is in some ways Another movie of this type and has less impact than the other one, I think.
0: I think I can I can go along with that in that. Although it's very self-serious and very weighty in a forced kind of way, there are ways in which Conan the Barbarian is, is an objectively better movie. Yeah. And yet, as you say. It's a lot more fun to watch Conan the Destroyer. Just follow along with this popcorn adventure and watch fun characters do fun things. Exactly. And, th- and that's one of those things where you're
1: like, screen or no screen isn't isn't a place where we say a movie being good or bad. It's a, it's a how we feel about whether or not you should watch it along with us. And I'm saying, absolutely. It's a very different thing. Watch this one, too. It's also fun.
0: Agreed. So I say screen this. Oh, yeah. And both movies... Would be interesting to put on as background video uh, with an interesting bit of music over them. I wish that, and maybe there's a version of it out there. You know how in the Sinbad Blu-rays or DVDs that we've got, there is the score-only version that you can watch? Yes. I don't know if that exists for Conan the Destroyer, but I wish it did. Yeah, yeah.
1: Side note, there's also really weird things on our Sinbad sin DVDs in terms oh. of song extras. Oh, so yes. I'm not sure we want all of those bonuses for yeah. Conan.
0: The 50s pop songs about Conan? Yeah. So I, I definitely say screen this. Ah, yeah. But And that, uh, that leads oh, us to our next question. You know, and if, if I was picking one of these to put on in the background yeah. as visuals, I probably would pick Conan the Destroyer. Partly because they toned down the violence dramatically. They it's did. still a pretty violent movie. Oh, yeah. But it's not the tons of blood John Milius movie that the first one is. And that was a very conscious decision. The, the first one was an R-rated, violent, serious movie. The second one was a PG, or I don't know if PG-13 existed yet. This was a PG movie, much toned down violence. More jokes. It was a more teen-friendly movie in that sense. And therefore, you're not going to put it on for visuals in the background and suddenly be hit with a geyser of blood. (laughs) Instead, you're going to have a little bit of stage blood as Conan destroys a mirror monster, that kind of thing.
1: It requires it requires a lot. It requires a lot ma- more Conan the Destroyers to equal one Conan the Barbarian. I'd say at about the ratio of Conan the Barbarians it takes to create one Lady Snowblood.
0: <laughs> yes, although with the 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 final battle against Dagoth, yeah, they had a lot of hydraulics in that costume, and they a lot did. of oozing and spurting of weird <laughs> blood and ichor and whatnot. Yeah, that that was a goopy but- beast. They kind of earned it by that time, though. It wasn't throughout the whole movie, having, you know, humans with limbs being removed, etc. Yeah. But, our second question. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? And once again, you know, this is part of a
1: larger series of other stories, so... A revival would be going off of this story, and that's tempting. But not because of Conan, but because of all the other people. Because... You know, the Zula stories they could go off and do and these other characters, these characters are a little bit more fleshed out in multiple ways than the other characters who weren't directly related to the plot in Conan the Barbarian, which implies there could be more stories elsewhere and out there with them and not Conan. So that's very tempting. Reboot, which would be doing this story again, doesn't feel needed. It feels like there's a plenty of other things, and it wouldn't have to be Conan to do something like this again. So at that point, why is it a reboot? So I'm split between Revive or Rest in Peace, but it's completely in a, do you run with it as a side story, or do you let this be because there's plenty like it?
0: Well, that's really interesting to, to hear you think maybe do a side story. Because in 1985, yeah, there was the movie Red Sonia. Is that connected? Yes, it's another Robert E. Howard character. Oh! This warrior woman in the Hyborian Age. Oh, I didn't realize it's that was Hyborian. kind of a Conan spinoff. And Arnold Schwarzenegger appears in that movie, but not as Conan. So it's not a sequel to the Conan movies, but it's another... Robert E. Howard, Hyborian swords and sorcery adaptation, and when it was originally announced, Ralph Bakshi was supposed to direct it. Really? Oh, but that th- that didn't work, and he was replaced by uh, Flesher again. So he directed Red Sonja after directing Conan the Destroyer. I hadn't realized they had that connection at all. Oh. So we did... I, I haven't heard a lot of good things about Red Sonja. I have never seen it. But they were trying to keep things going. I think by that time, Schwarzenegger was getting more offers to do more things, and it never kind of clicked for him to play uh, Conan again. Yeah. So... I... I mean, like we've said, it's, it's kind of hard with an adaptation. A reboot is really just another adaptation. And we've got the Jason Momoa Conan movie, which we haven't seen yet, and other takes on Conan. So I could see reboots of Conan.
1: Yeah, if we're looking at the franchise as a whole, I think it could be rebooted, but
0: also... Mm. I am more interested in the idea of a revival. Because we know that Conan is going to have a long career. He's eventually going to be a king. And in fact, I think one of the Marvel spin-off comics was of King Conan, about king Conan late in his career. It would be interesting to see Arnold Schwarzenegger come back now. Oh, yeah. To play King Conan.
1: Just doing something in the late Hyborian age when it's possibly going to fade. Yes. You know, here's this this new adventure, another swords and sandals kind of movie, but it, it has someone taking the request from this old king. <laughs> that
0: I could, think it could work. I think it was Zach Stentz on Twitter. And if you're not following Zach Stentz, you're missing a lot of really cool things about movies and about storytelling in general. But someone said if we can have a new Indiana Jones movie about the. the aging Indiana Jones at the end of this amazing career and we can still have Harrison Ford playing Indiana Jones for one last adventure why can't we have Arnold Schwarzenegger as King Conan pick up the sword one more time and play the kind of story and, and a kind of story that would have a different feel for the reasons that you just described I am all for that that could definitely work I like that idea. So I would like to see a uh, a revival, another sequel. I'm with you on that. Well, this was fun. It's a fun way to
1: spend the holidays. This has been an excellently fun way to spend the holidays. <laughs> it's been it's been a very very different kind of kind of media to enjoy during the uh, the season of of snow and sleigh bells to uh, instead be seeing you know, the wide open plains and a very different kind of sleigh
0: I do now kind of wish that one of the magi in our nativity scene uh, looked like Akira. That would be cool. (laughs) Whenever you're listening to this, I hope that you have had a a delightful holiday season, that you're in the midst of a delightful holiday season, and that 2023 brings you everything that you want it to.
1: And we also hope that one of those things that you want 2023 to bring you is More episodes of the IMMP since <laughs> because they will be coming your way, uh, either way, <laughs> exactly. We're gonna keep making and we're just happy to have you there. And thank you from all of us here to all of you out there, absolutely. Speaking uh, of out there, Dad, where can they find you?
0: Oh, you can find me most places as by Matthew Porter, so by, by Matthew Porter.com, by Porter uh, on Twitter, uh, by Matthew Porter at mastodon.social on mastodon by Matthew Porter on YouTube where you can find the Draft House Diaries I review the movies and food and everything else about every one of my visits to the Alamo Draft House Cinema. And Ian, where can people find you?
1: I can be found most places as Item Crafting, Twitter, YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, I'm going to hopefully soon be starting to post videos once again to there. Being able to make crafts and play video games to share with you as well. I can be found as Item Crafting live on Twitch. Yeah, most places, and I'll have uh, links at itemcrafting.com to be able to find me most places.
0: And you can find the podcast at immproject.com, and that's where you'll find links to our YouTube channel. You'll find links to all of our past episodes, including 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You'll find a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much for anybody who's sponsoring us there. You help keep the podcast going. And uh, you'll find a link to our shop if you like coffee mugs and t-shirts and notebooks and other fun things like that. And uh, a couple of things I'll note for Patreon, we still have a special promotion to celebrate our, our recent hundredth episode and fourth anniversary of the podcast. Normally, if you join at the movie club level, when you're a member of the movie club for a couple of months, you're eligible for a a free DVD in the mail. Anybody who is a member of, Uh, at our Patreon at the Movie Club level, as of January 1st, we'll get the first DVD shipment of 2023, even if you sign up on December 31st. And also, if you go to immproject.com and go to our contact page, you'll find our P.O. Box. If you send a self-addressed stamped envelope to the P.O. Box, we will send you back stickers. But most important, just thank you very much for downloading. Thank you very much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch.